in just a moment. I'm going to continue reading the story of David and Goliath. But if you'll allow me for just a few moments, since it's been so long that we have been in 1 Samuel, let me just catch us up real quickly on where we are in this book. It's been more than a year now because the circumstances have been such uh, that we haven't been able to get back here. But 1 Samuel is the story of kingship, the development of kingship in Israel. And it is a grand unfolding of the plan and the work of God as he brings a king to his people, an earthly, a human king to his people. But of course, the book of 1 Samuel, if you'll recall it, doesn't begin with a king. That's not the first scene that we see when we open it up. Instead, what it begins with is a family, a family that has come to worship the Lord, and, and the focus zooms in on a childless wife within that family who is both praying and weeping. And the Lord hears Hannah, and, and in this simple moment, in this simple woman's prayers, kind of we get the launch of these grand things that God intends to do for his people. It's a beautiful picture of God using and hearing the smallest of things to set in motion his plans. Hannah gives birth to a son by God's provision, and the weeping then turns into a song, a song that sets us off on the journey for the rest of the history of Israel. Samuel, her son, will be raised up as a prophet, and as God's prophet, he will speak the word of God to the people because, as we read in the book, the word of God was rare in those days. And the word of God here, in the person of Samuel and communicated through him, precedes the coming of the king. In fact, God uses Samuel, the prophet, to prepare the way, to kind of get the people ready for the coming of a king. And when the time comes, according to God's appointment and the not-so-pure desires of the people to have a king, Saul is anointed as the king. And you'll recall the story of Saul, that Saul, from our text even today, Saul looks the part of a king. And in fact, he is empowered by God and used by God as a king. And yet there's a problem. The problem is that Saul has a heart defect. It's not immediately visible because it's a spiritual heart defect that exists within him. And this defect that exists in his heart will cause him to sin grievously against the Lord with the result that the Lord will reject him from being king. That takes place in chapter 15. In chapter 16, as it begins, we find Samuel, the prophet, continuing to grieve the rejection of Saul. It was bleak and it was dark. And Samuel thought, all of this seems to have led up to a king. And now we don't have anything. We have God having rejected the king. What is left for us now when God comes to him and says, listen, you need to get up. How long are you going to keep grieving over one that I have rejected? 
because now I have prepared another. I have, am giving rise to a new hope, a man after my own heart. And so chapter 16 and then chapter 17, if you integrate the two of them together, they introduce us to this man after God's own heart. They introduce us to David through battle, through anointing, through the series of providences that put Samuel and David right together and prepare David for this role that we see him in even today. So let's continue the reading then. I will pick it up with verse 24. And I know it's a long section, but it's one story. And just enjoy the story again as we hear the word of the Lord. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man that is Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. 
And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim, as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we look at the old story and hear it once again. We pray that you would help us to have our hearts refreshed, that where they are afraid, you would bring to us courage, that where we are finding ourselves in despair, we would find in Jesus Christ, our champion, the one who stands for us and defeats our enemies, and in whose name we pray. Amen. I, I wonder if there's any story in the Bible that is more widely known than the story of David and Goliath. I don't know. I, I don't know if within the culture at large, if there would be something else that would be a reference that would be as easily recognizable as the one to David and Goliath. One writer notes that even their names themselves, David and Goliath, are proverbial. So that if someone in the, again, just in the culture at large, if someone says to us or in conversation that it was a real David and Goliath story, Everybody knows immediately what they are trying to say. They're, they're trying to say whether it was in uh, sports or whether it was in business or whether it was in politics or some other sphere, 
that the little guy had victory over the big guy, and we get it immediately. I can remember, and this may be true for some of you as well, that we had a storybook, a children's storybook of David and Goliath when the kids were young. And of course, that was the one that in particular, the boys loved to read. Uh, Maybe the girls loved to read it as well. And I'm telling you that uh, at least our boys loved to read that story. And they knew the words that story and could act as if they were reading the story long before they could ever actually read and write because they got the story and they knew the words and they loved to hear it and uh, and say it over and over again. When I when I read this, and I, maybe it's just this time in particular, but I, I, I found myself imagining myself as, uh, as a child of the Israelites in captivity in Babylon and, and sitting around a fire finding yourselves out of your land with no apparent and nothing to hang on to in your life. And then across the fire saying to one of the elders, tell us the story again of David and Goliath. We want to hear that again. Now, I should probably be clear about something. I think that the very familiarity of this story is actually quite dangerous. And and I'll get to that. A little bit later in the sermon. But the, the danger of it, notwithstanding for a moment, the story of David and Goliath obviously, obviously has an enduring, deep, uh, cross-cultural, timeless resonance to it. It, it, it gives birth to, to hope and to courage and to faith in people who hear this story, and all of us need that. Now, today, as we approach this story, there are two things I'm not going to do today. I'm not going to retell the story, and I'm not going to outline uh, the story. I think you know the story, and as it is written for us, it is pretty clear in terms of what is being said throughout the story. So I'm going to resist both of those impulses. What I would like to do instead is just to make a few observations as we look at this story that might be things that perhaps maybe we overlook sometimes as we recall the story or as we tell the story. Now, for the sake only of convenience or of of thinking about it today, I've, I've made each of these things start with an R. But this is not an outline. These are just observations that are found within this great story. So the first observation is this. This battle is a battle of representatives. Goliath, of course, represents the Philistines and all those who are opposed to Israel. And then by extension, all those who are opposed to Israel's God. David, of course, on the other hand, represents the armies of the living God. And then by extension, David represents in in this battle, God himself. They have a contest here of representatives. They're fighting a single combat contest. But there are geopolitical issues that are obviously going on at the time. They're representing something much larger geopolitically And at the exact same time, there are spiritual issues that are going on. So they are representing not only geopolitical issues, but they are representing spiritual things as well. 
uh, when I read this. I don't know if you are familiar with the Iliad. Uh, but the Iliad comes to mind when I read this. And if you remember the story of the Iliad, as we get ready, as we prepare for warfare between Trojans and the Greeks, the lines begin to come together when Paris steps out of the Trojan line or steps, uh, steps up and offers single combat and basically says to the Greeks, you choose a man, I'll be the man from the Trojan side, and we will fight it out. And that will decide this instead of the melee of two armies coming together and fighting against one another for who knows how long. And as it turns out, Menelaus steps out of the Greek lines and Paris goes, maybe this wasn't such a good idea uh, for me to enter into this. Be that as it may, and it doesn't work out of course, but there is a covenanting then by the leaders of the Trojans and the leaders of the Greeks. There's a covenanting ceremony that then takes place by which they agree to the terms of the combat and by which they agree to abide by whoever's the winner taking the spoils, that this is the way it will work out. There's a lot of similarities between these two stories in the way that they unfold. And I want to say that this idea of single combat of representatives is not incidental to this story. In fact, it is at the heart of our understanding of how God works in this world, covenantally and through representatives. And, and the way for us to understand this is to understand this battle, this battle between David and Goliath right here, between two other battles between two other champions. So the first is to remember is Adam. Adam went into battle, single combat, against Satan and the evil one. And he goes into that battle as our covenantally sealed representative. All of humanity is represented, is represented in him in that battle. And in his loss is our loss. We are united to him. So the way the Westminster Confession puts it is that all those descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So he goes into the lists. He goes in as our king, as our representative, as a single combat player. And in his loss, we all lose. That's one battle. The other battle on the other side of this is, of course, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our covenantally sealed representative. Jesus goes into battle against the evil one. We could look at it as a precursor in the wilderness when he's tempted. And then finally on the cross, he goes into battle against him. And in his victory is our victory. All those descending from him, not by ordinary generation, which was the way it went with Adam, but all those descending from Jesus by faith. He is our representative. And, and this battle then between David and Goliath is for us illuminating that reality. The reality that, covenantally speaking, it'll be one against one, ultimately. And everyone else in the story eventually goes off stage. They go to the background so that these two stand facing one another. That for us is our loss in Adam and it becomes our gain in Christ. So representative, second observation. 
is the word reproach that is used in this text. The word reproach or the word defy, they're the same word in uh, Hebrew. It's, it's an expression of mocking. It's an expression of derision that exists here. When we get uh, Goliath introduced to us, we hear him say, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. And then later, that's in verse 10. And then that's, that's the same word there. And then in 26, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for this man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? That is the shame, the mocking, the derision. How do we get rid of that? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Goliath represents the nations. He represents those who are in rebellion against God on the front of your bulletin from Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. In Goliath, the pretenses of the world are stripped away. We look at him as kind of brash and kind of brazen and who would do something like this. But what we are allowed to see in him is what we are actually doing in and of ourselves without Christ in our sin. In our sin, we are defying God. We are bringing reproach upon God and the name of God. And so Goliath represents this rebellion against God, this reproach. And of course, as David comes before Goliath, Goliath is going to mock and heap derision upon David. Uh, even David's uh, older brother, uh, older brothers, uh, uh, I'm a younger brother, so I, I can just, older brothers tend to look at younger brothers as pain. And, uh, and so Eliab, when David comes on the scene, is just convinced that he's there for evil intent, that he's a pain, uh, and that he's out for his own ends, his irritating little brother. And, and later it will be sung by Israel of David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear the insults of many nations. So the anointed one is having to bear the insults because that's what is, that's what is against him as the anointed one. Jesus will quote one of David's songs, zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Goliath mocks. He derides, and in so doing, he shows us the true nature that is actually within ourselves as well. The Lord's anointed has to bear the reproach of mankind. That is why when Jesus goes to the cross and throughout his life, he must be mocked and scorned. He must bear as the anointed one what we do to him, our sin laid upon him. And so he bears it on the cross on our behalf and through the words of men. Uh, don't be surprised, application-wise, if you need to bear it as well. Third observation from the text is revision. Revision. The Philistines and Goliath have a pretty simple viewpoint, a pretty clear worldview, and it's this. The guy who is the biggest and the strongest and the toughest 
we'll defeat everybody else. Especially, especially when that guy is equipped with the strongest armor and the most modern weaponry that exists at the time, that guy wins. Now, you can talk about gods and God all you want to, but all of us know, and this is the Philistine worldview viewpoint, that when push comes to shove, Goliath is going to shove and you are going to move because that's the way things work. The tough guys, the biggest guys, they win in the end. Now, it's not surprising to us that that would be the Philistine worldview. It's not surprising to us that that's the way they look at things and experience things. What is surprising to us, though, I think, is that Israel and Saul, they pick up that exact same worldview and they allow it, allow it to become their own. They own it. They own the idea that power prevails and therefore they are afraid. They are dismayed and they lose heart when they see this guy standing in front of them because they look at him and they think what everybody else would naturally think. How in the world can you possibly defeat Goliath? Who can stand against somebody like that? When David arrives on the scene, perhaps it's a good thing that he hadn't been there for those 40 days of boasting, because David arrives on the scene with what we might call a fresh set of eyes. He looks at this situation having, having seen what's going on, and he sees it from an utterly different perspective, through the eyes of the heart, as Scripture calls them, or the eyes of faith. He is able to re-image this situation, to revision this situation. If, if you want to put another a song in David's heart, when David approaches this situation, when he sees what's going on, the lines and, and of battle being drawn up and Goliath coming out, David is kind of singing in his heart, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Be thou my battle shield, sword for my fight. Now, we should be clear about something here. Many of us know, by our own experience, that there is an air of invincibility and kind of a foolish recklessness that accompanies youth. There's a sense to which you can't be hurt. Nothing really bad is going to happen to you. And if it did, you'd get over it anyway. And at first, when Saul hears David talking, he thinks he might be hearing exactly that. Just somebody who's young and inexperienced talking in a way that they don't understand, who will get killed the minute this battle actually starts. Just a young person. But as he listens to David, and he listens to David explain why he wants to go and fight Goliath, he hears in David not just some ramblings, not just words of invincibility, but instead he hears from David the lessons of faith as they have been worked out in the practice of David's life. And so what he hears, he realizes, is not foolishness, is not just vain kind of boasting that's out there, but what he hears in him is, in fact, faith. Let's be clear about something else. David 
is not against armor and weaponry as a matter of principle. He is against them in this case, in his own case, as a matter of strategy. That which may be helpful in some other circumstances for some other person having a suit of armor and a sword is in fact in this situation an encumbrance for him. That's the way he sees it. It, it. it doesn't say here that the armor didn't fit him. It says that he had not tested it. It said that he was unfamiliar. It didn't feel right to him. It didn't suit him because that's not the way he had operated. Speed and dexterity will be needed as long as they are secondary to the necessity of faith that revisions the situation. Let me ask us this question. Where might we have unwittingly accepted the viewpoint, the eyes of the world in something, and accepted the way that the world sees something and begun to own that for ourselves. All right, fourth observation. We've got representatives, reproach, revision, and then this is a story of redemption. This is a story of deliverance. David says as much, the Lord delivered me from the bears and the lions, and he's going to deliver us from this Philistine who defies the armies of the living God. This is a story of salvation. God is at work here through a man to be sure, but the lines in this passage echo throughout all of the ages, verse 47 in particular, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not David, the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. The message of the text is salvation is of the Lord. This is a story of God's redeeming his people once again, of saving them once again, and that is exactly where, this is exactly the point at which the danger of the familiarity of the story is exposed for us. When this story is referenced in our culture, and maybe oftentimes in our own lives as well, it becomes the story of the underdog. It becomes, in a way, the story of the little engine that could, or a poem that was thrust before me throughout my childhood, the man who thinks he can, by Walter Winkle. In, in the familiarity of the story, the story is, in fact, scrubbed. Right? You know that term? That term has come up a couple of times recently. The, the story is scrubbed. And you know who gets the scrubbing? God. The, the Lord gets scrubbed out of the story. The divinity gets scrubbed out of the story. The, the clarion call that the battle is the Lord's gets scrubbed out of the story and it becomes a tale of human perseverance, of, of self-belief, of, of you just got to believe in yourself, of self-confidence. It's tragic. The common telling of the story misses the exact point of the story. And, and more than that, it misses the point of the story at the time, which of course is the battle is the Lord and salvation of the Lord. But it misses the point 
to which the point of the story points. Which is to say the, the victory of Jesus Christ. The victory of Christ, our kingly champion, Jesus, who crushes Satan and sin and death under his feet. <laughs> and the, the common retelling misses every bit of that. Jesus, though, by his victory, cancels by his cross the record of debt that stood against us. That's what's going on here. It's the Colossians passage that I have printed for us as the promise of forgiveness. That's what is happening here. It is this victory that is being described for us in this passage in Old Testament terms. I suspect, and I think it's understandable, if you find the carrying about of Goliath's head to be somewhat troubling, somewhat unsavory, somewhat kind of gross, kind of yuck, what's going on with carrying a separate head around? But if you will, lay that physicality up against verse 15. Verse 15 of Colossians 2 in your bulletins. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. So Jesus comes up, he knocks them down, he grabs the sword away from them, he disarms them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Off with the head of the evil one, he triumphs over them in open shame to say, death reigns no more. I am, Jesus says, destroying the destroyers of the earth. That's from the Revelation passage that was our call to worship this morning. Our redemption depends upon the great king destroying them. So, so the point of the passage isn't go out and be a champion. Even when the odds are against you and it's dangerous and you're facing difficult situations, a team that seems like you can't win against them because they're so tall or they're so big or they're so strong or whatever it is. The point is not that. The point isn't go be a champion. The point is we need a champion. We need a king. We need someone to defeat the enemy that is too strong for us. And if our own lives should convince us of anything, what should be patently obvious to us is that the enemy of sin and death and Satan, that's too strong for us. We need a champion to defeat that. Last observation, fifth R, is reward. David and Israel are rewarded in this victory. They plunder the camp. The reward for Jesus after his victory is receiving the name that is above every name and offspring. Offspring throughout all the ages. You're the reward for the victory of Christ. David would write in a song, in the keeping of the law of the Lord, there is great reward Paul would, wrote, would write, godliness with contentment is great gain as long as we keep in the forefront of our minds that the battle belongs to the Lord. As long as we sing, he is the champion, not we are the champions. Then we can appreciate the example of this. Then we can appreciate the faith and the courage that is shown here, and we can seek to emulate it unto the glory of King Jesus. And in that way, David and Goliath properly resonates for us.
Paul wrote this, we'll just say it in conclusion. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This ancient story with all of its brutality is the story of the anointed king, the story of the Messiah, the story, finally, of the Christ. And the hope is this. The Christ won, and our Christ wins. Lord, we pray that you would help us in this world to trust in you, to hope not in ourselves, but to hope only in you. Thank you for your word. Instruct us through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of you who are online this morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here. But for those of you online, now may the God of hope.